We are in the final week of our stewardship series, Spill the Tea, and today we are looking at the theme of testimony. So I'm sure you can agree with me that the disciples were just like us. Am I right? They were just normal people. But they wanted power. And most humans want power. But the disciples especially wanted power over other disciples. And they were convinced if only they had position in the kingdom that they'd be able to accomplish great things, at least for themselves. And if you can recall, James and John, the sons of Zebedee and the sons of Thunder, they pushed for position. And in Mark, we read the account where James and John came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And what do they say to them? Grant us to sit one at your right hand at one at your left in your glory. And these boys even got their mom to plead their case. We read in Matthew The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? And she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She didn't want much, did she? Just for her sons to be number one and number two in the kingdom of God. But if we carry on reading in Matthew 20, when the ten heard it, They were indignant at the brothers. But their indignation appears to have arisen primarily because they didn't have the courage to make the same request. Like contemporary churchgoers, the disciples jockeyed for position and for power in the kingdom of God. It wasn't only these two that were ambitious. On another occasion when Jesus had spoken of the inability of wealth to secure one's position in heaven, the disciples were astonished. We read in Matthew 19 verses 25 and 26, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The disciples were obviously surprised by what Jesus was teaching because Peter, speaking for all of the disciples, asks, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? His concern was whether they'd be recognized. But Jesus, in that moment, recognized unholy ambition for for power, clinging to them, his disciples, like the stench of death. And as he was about to leave them, a little bit later on in the Bible, he says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But the power he's talking about will not be military or economic or political. You will not have titles of office, he tells them. You will be my witnesses. You will have testimonies. Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. That's what he tells them. Testimonies 
are more important than titles. A title is a rank, office, or an attainment given by this world. And these titles and offices may be cancelled by the world. Testimonies are more important than titles. Pharaoh had a title, but Moses had a testimony. Jezebel had a title, but Elijah had a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar had a title, but Daniel had a testimony. Herod had a title, but John the Baptist had a testimony. Agrippa had a title, but Paul had a testimony. Pilate had a title, but Jesus had a testimony. And he had a title, that he is the Son of the living God. Do you have a title or a testimony? I heard a preacher ask this question during a sermon once. And the question caused me to pause so that I could reflect on what is cherished in life. As Christians, we are too often caught up in the foolishness of this life, exchanging the eternal for the worldly. An old saint of bygone years warned against sacrificing the permanent on the altar of the immediate. We make choices on the basis for what we imagine we want in the next 20 years, the next 10 years, or even in the next coming year. And when we do this, we lose sight of eternity. Consequently, we are often guilty of making a fool's choice, exchanging eternity for immediate pleasure. And we forget that Moses, in Hebrews chapter 11, chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. If all you have is a title, you'll be saddened at your death because you'll have to leave all behind. But if you have a testimony, you'll not fear death because at that moment of transition, at that moment of change, real life will begin. Like I shared last Sunday, the real issue is where your life has been invested. If your investment is in material matters, all will be surrendered at death. If your investment is in eternal matters, you are assured of eternal rewards. This is what Jesus taught us when he said in Matthew 6, 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor vermin destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Do you have a testimony? If you belong to Christ, you do. And the important thing about your testimony is that it is totally different than anyone else's. We tend to think that testimonies of those whose lives have been dramatically changed are so much more impactful than others. But I have to tell you, those of you who've been saved longer than you can remember and have continued with the Lord all of those years, that in itself is a great testimony. Is your testimony important? Many are faithful to tithe and give sacrificially of their time and their talent, but they forget giving a testimony 
is a powerful gift to God used to touch other people. So your testimony is not only sharing what the Lord did for you at your salvation, but also what he continued to do in you and for you since. There are three things to note about our personal conversion stories. The first one, there is an account of who you were before you were saved. In my case, I can't really remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. So this is a little bit tricky for me to reflect on. Secondly, there is an account of who you are after you are saved. And the truth is, after you've come to the Lord and asked him to be in your life, you are changed at the most basic level. And then thirdly, there is a continual challenge as to what we can be in Christ. So I want to look at what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. We're reading from verse 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So firstly, the first thing, who you were before you were saved. Do you ever spend time thinking about your life before you were a Christian? Do any of you ever do that? Like I said earlier, I can't really recall my life without God. But I do glory in what God has done in me. And I can't take credit for how he has blessed me in my life. Secondly, who are you now that you are saved? Verse 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I'm going to ask you a question. Does our DNA change after we are saved? Does our DNA change after we are saved? It's a tricky question, isn't it? And my answer was, no. Our natural DNA does not change, but our spiritual DNA does. Many people are used to thinking of DNA as an unchanging programming that governs all the body's responses for the rest of a person's life. In essence, certain things about our DNA are unlikely to change ever. There are a number of outside things that could result in minor DNA change. However, 
As you age, for instance, you may note DNA expression changes in a variety of ways. Hair gets gray, skin gets wrinkly, and illnesses are a little bit more common. The effect of environmental influence on DNA is still being studied intensely, but there are some certain known features of environmental influence. For one thing, changes in DNA may really be better called mutations. And the programs in certain cells don't work as well, and this is obviously reflected in aging. Exactly why certain codes, such as the ones to produce tight skin, don't work as well, isn't fully known. There is strong supposition, though, that things like sun exposure may change how well DNA operates. Now, my next question is, if natural occurrences can change DNA, even if it's only subtly, then what can a supernatural occurrence do? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We've been changed from being dead to being alive in Christ. That is a change at the most basic level. Cells, molecules, tissues, organs, everything about us that shouted out death is now life. Our spiritual DNA has gone from dead to alive. Our natural DNA is also changed, or at the least, put in a position that it will be changed. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works that no one can boast. Who saves you? How is it accomplished? Do you have a part in it? Grace has been poured out for all mankind to be saved, but only those who receive it by faith will be saved. And it doesn't matter how hard you try on your own, your works will never save you. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. Paul does not say it is a gift from God, but the gift of God. All the other benefits we subsequently receive from the Lord are good, but they are just additional gifts. And I'm not trying to downplay those additional benefits. I'm just trying to prioritize them. The third thing, what God desires you to be. For any of you who think that your only purpose in life is to get saved, be part of a church, and wait till Jesus comes to take you to glory, well, no, that's not true. That may be your attitude, but that's not what God has planned for you. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word translated workmanship in the original language of the Bible means product. My friends, you, each one of you who are born again, have been handcrafted by God for a specific purpose. Some of you have not yet figured out what that purpose is. But have you ever asked God. So many times we've heard from God that he wants you to do something, and your first response is, I can't do that. Tell me the truth this morning. 
Who's told God, I can't do that? There's no way I could teach kids. There's no way I could share my faith. There's no way I could stand up there and preach. There's no way I could mm, 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 fill in the blank for yourself. I'm just not built that way. Sometimes we make excuses using a type of false humility in an effort to get out of what God has called you to do. Well, I'm not really anyone that people would listen to. I'm not very smart, very good looking, very outgoing. What does verse 10 say? We are God's workmanship. Has God called you to something that he hasn't already empowered you to do? Look through the Bible. Did God choose Noah because he was a master shipbuilder? Did he choose Moses because he was a great speaker? Did he choose David because he just looked like a king? How about the 12 disciples? Fisherman, a tax collector, a political zealot, and a crooked bookkeeper. What about the 72? Did he choose them because they could do great things? No. He chose them because he knew that he was working with them and through them. What were you created for? To do good works. The very works of God. The same thing that Jesus did. Because you are co-heirs with Christ. Because you are in him. Because you are the body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I want to finish up this point with the timing of the calling. Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Just as the plan of salvation was foreordained from the foundation of the earth, every good work God has called for you to do in Christ is the same. The eternal God who has called you and empowered you planned it from the very beginning. So in two weeks from now, when you share your faith with someone at work or in the supermarket or at a picnic or around the bra, God had already planned it. Next year, when you reach out to a homeless person, God is already there. Nothing you can do in your service for the Lord will ever come as a surprise to him. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, wrote this. The work of a Beethoven and the work of a charwoman become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. This does not, of course, mean that it is for anyone a mere toss-up of whether he should sweep rooms or compose symphonies. A mole must dig to the glory of God and a cock must crow. Listen to me. The work that God has given you to do will only be accomplished the same way that your salvation came, by God's grace, activated by our faith. So what does your testimony look like? Is there a clear difference between who you were before being in him and after? There should be. There should be a joy that fills you and overflows into the world around you. There should be a confidence like you've never had before. There should be a love that can only come from God. There should be an evidence that doesn't only come from your words or your attitude. There should be an evidence in your life from the things you do, the works that God pre-planned for you to do. 
a willing to serve him in whatever endeavor he's called you. And assuming you truly do know Christ, you must understand that we have a responsibility to be good stewards of our testimony. In this series so far, we've talked about being good stewards of our time and talents and treasures. We need to understand that the reason God gives us the time and the talents and the treasures he does is so that he might use them to tell others about Christ. Sharing Jesus is the Christian's primary mission in life. In his book, Becoming a Contagious Christian, Bill Hybels wrote this. God custom designed you with your unique combination of personality, temperament, talents, and background. And he wants to harness and use these in his mission to reach this messed up world. The great violinist Niccolo Paganini willed his famous violin to Genoa, the city of his birth. But only on condition that the instrument never be played upon. Now, it was an unfortunate condition, for it is is a peculiarity of wood that as long as it is used and handled, it shows little wear. As soon as it is discarded, it begins to decay. The exquisite, mellow-toned violin has become worm-eaten in its beautiful case, valueless except as a relic. This moldering instrument is a reminder that a life withdrawn from all service to others loses its meaning. So are you willing to be that vessel of God that will bring glory to his name through the obedience to his will for your life? You are in him. You were bought with a price. You are his workmanship, his handiwork, his product. Now is the time to let his reflection show in you. We all have a testimony to share. We all have a story. How we steward our time, our talent, and our treasure, all the things that God has blessed us with, write the pages of the story that God has for each one of us. And if you are sitting in this room this morning, your story is not yet done. You can still write the best chapter yet, but you need to be willing to be used by God. I'm going to ask Megs to come up. And I'm going to pray. She's going to sing a song for us. And while she does that, after I've prayed, I want you to spend a few moments just surrendering to God. Surrendering your time, your talent, your treasure but more importantly, your testimony. Because those other things, how and what we do with them, write our testimony. How we use our time and our talent and our treasure, write the pages of our story. So what you do with the first three, write the pages of your testimony. And it's up to you. So this morning, I'd like to provide an opportunity for you to spend some time with God, listening to Him, surrendering to Him as He refines you. 
into who you need to be. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, today as I come to the point of total submission to your will, I completely surrender my life to yours. I thank you for the gift of life and for filling me with purpose. No matter what you place on my heart, Lord, I declare it will be done to the best of my ability by the leading of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that when temptation comes my way, the Holy Spirit will guide me and help me to triumph over whatever situations I face. I thank you for the opportunities I have to live for you and you alone and to walk in complete obedience. O Lord, giver of life and source of our freedom, we are reminded that yours is the earth in its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. We know that it is from your hand that we have received all we have and are and will be. Gracious and loving God, we understand that you call us to be the stewards of your abundance, the caretakers of all you have entrusted to us. Help us always to use your gifts wisely and teach us to share them generously. I offer my gifts of time, talent and treasure to you as a true act of faith to reflect my love for you and my neighbor. Help me to reach out to others as you, my God, have reached out to me. May my faithful stewardship bear witness through my testimony to the love of Christ in my life. I pray this with a grateful heart. In Jesus' name, amen.